beautiful day today. Here we are, Professor Latinx, and I've got George and Rajiv in the studio today to talk about, actually, Batman, the, uh, especially Nolan's trilogy. And we might touch a little bit on CW's new uh, Batwoman Um Talking about you know issues of representation generally, uh, mental illness, maybe some race, class, um, gender issues in the trilogy and elsewhere in the kind of Batman universe. So just to launch us here, you guys, um, Batman begins, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. You know, single-handedly, at least in my opinion, um, you know made the space of comic book films a space for complexity, right? Complex storytelling, complex representation of character development. And with Nolan's, you know, craft, I mean, you know, taking it all to another level. And in many ways, I don't think I've seen any DC films since that have come to that level. What do you guys think about that? I haven't really seen a superhero movie in general go really to that level other than maybe Logan in terms of like its approach to these kind of issues, these kind of themes. It really kind of for a lot, I think I think for me it was like really the the first superhero movie along with maybe like Spider-Man 2 that really kind of pushed the boundaries and like really kind of changed the game in terms of how superhero movies are consumed. And it isn't really until like the complete dominance of Marvel that that kind of paradigm shifted again. But I think really in terms of like narrative depth, thematic depth, the peak is really with this Dark Knight trilogy. And maybe you can include Logan in that as well. But in general, I think the trend has moved kind of away from that and more towards kind of a more pop sensibility you see in a lot of the Marvel movies. And that's not to say that they're lacking in thematic depth. It's that it kind of is more about being entertaining than necessarily about tackling these complex issues. I have to agree. And I think that one of the things Nolan did was he made every element of the movie feel like it had weight. He gave the soundtrack so much more time and energy than I feel like any superhero movie had come close to before. He made the costumes feel believable. He gave the characters real lead-ups and stories before they became their superheroes. Um Every piece of the movie felt like something that somebody had sat down and crafted out of love as opposed to leaning on the tradition of the film or going with whatever the current trope was. Yeah, and there's no none of that kind of dis ex machina where the, uh, suddenly the superpower is sort of thrown in there and it saves the narrative, right? It saves holes or stitches over holes in plots, right? This is, like you guys were saying, I mean, every single part of the story has been thought through and every single part of the filming has been, you know, in terms of it showing and its sound space, everything. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe that's also why, um, you know, in many ways, I also fault it so much for certain things that it doesn't get right. Like, you know, here's this master intelligence, not just Nolan, but the whole team working together to pull off something pretty extraordinary. And then we still have some steps back when it comes to um, sort of racial otherness, um, mental sort of representation of mental illness, um, issues of, um, you know, the kind of Orientalism in, in the film and so on. But um, even maybe class. Um, but let's start with 
let's start with um you know batman begins and see maybe where we go with this you know his resurrection his origin takes place when he's slumming it around the world including the himalayas right i think that this sort of vision quest theme where he goes off to this exotic to us part of the world um, and becomes a new person is something we've seen in basically every genre um, in almost every form of, of media and the continuation of that is one of the biggest faults I find with not just this movie but with, with almost any place it pops up that absolutely getting out of your environment and and getting out of your area of comfort is something real people should do to grow as people but this idea that it's like flipping a switch and suddenly he knows karate and he's a superhero was troubling to me personally i didn't really feel the same in terms of that kind of flipping the switch nature of it i definitely think you could point out flaws in terms how the uh, early part of the movie kind of handled its representation of places in asia and that kind of thing but i think that the movie also does a pretty good job in terms of showing kind of that it's not just something easy that he can do. That it definitely is still kind of a montage and coming of age. It's still that kind of standard. But I don't think the film kind of skimped on having it be like something easy. It's still something where he's kind of out of his element and he's learning from his betters. And he's coming into his own in that aspect. Yeah. What do you, so here we, he becomes a, a kind of sensei martial arts master in the sort of uh, the space of the other or in Asia. And then he brings, he kind of imports that back. Um, and we still see him, right? His power comes in and through not just the martial arts, but blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Literally literalized in the armor that he's wearing. Um, can we read that? I mean, could, if we were to continue to read this, yeah, Rajiv, what were you? Well, I think, I think you see this kind of idea of like darkness as something that he adopts as his own. You see this even in like the Dark Knight Rises with like Bane's line, uh, you adopted the darkness, but I was born in it and molded by it. It's kind of like he's still kind of taking it, and it's not his to begin with. It was not something that he started with, but it's something that he took for his own and kind of made it, like, appropriated in his own way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could read that kind of like in a way of cultural – like I wouldn't even say cultural appropriation, but, like, kind of appropriating the techniques and that kind of thing into his own style. Yeah, so white savior wearing sort of blackness or coming to terms with blackness, you know, darkness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's just so many, like, on a metaphoric level, I know that's part of his journey. It's to embrace his own fears. Um, But, yeah, I mean, maybe we could extrapolate this onto, you know, cinema in generally and the white savior narrative and how the other the dark other or the black other or the brown other serves this function of where we you know see the white character stepping in doing it better than and then kind of saving the planet as a result but maybe i'm mis- maybe i'm overreading here i wouldn't necessarily call it like it, it's almost like he he is taking something from another culture and using it as a tool to adjust the culture that he's in and while 
I do think that there are some problematic histories to that. The way Nolan does it is probably better. Um, I, I would absolutely agree with Rajiv in this. That, like, he does have to at least work for it, which is better than a lot of what has come before. Even yeah. if it's, we're not perfect yet. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to tell you guys this straight up. I mean, you know, you compare Zack Snyder's Batman to Chris Nolan's, and we're, the world's a difference, right, guys? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, but that actually leads me to something, um, some another area for us to kind of get in and maybe, um, you know, wrestle with um, class. Because, of course, Zack Snyder's Ben Affleck, you know, the whole kind of his character revolves around the fact that he's kind of, you know, full of himself and wealthy, right? That That's his superpower. He even tells us that. Um, but class in Chris Nolan's Batman universe is different. Rajiv, do you want to throw us in here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think really it's a part kind of of all the Chris Nolan Batman movies, this kind of class struggle in general. In the first one, you see it in the form of kind of these flashbacks where you have Thomas Wayne, which is Bruce's father, kind of talking about how he's doing a lot of philanthropy and helping out the town, right? And you kind of see that in a way that there's kind of this idolization of this wealth, of this kind of opulence and this kind of using this massive amount of resources as an individual, this kind of individualist streak where kind of like the billionaire savior will come in with their philanthropic ways and save all of us. And you kind of see that the counterpoint to that in The Dark Knight Rises with Bane kind of taking the opposite route, which is the 1% are wrong. We need to rip them out of their homes and spread their wealth to everyone. And that's really presented kind of villainously in The Dark Knight Rises. And kind of as a counterpoint to that is Batman. He's obviously a billionaire. And he's kind of the evidence of kind of like this billionaire savior whose philanthropy is helping people out. And you kind of see that trend throughout all these movies where it kind of idolizes that role and doesn't really kind of push back against it and think, well, is one person kind of running around beating up all these criminals really the way you solve this problem from the root up? I've heard it said before that Batman's superpower is money. And I think that got emphasized quite a bit in Nolan's interpretation of it. And probably a part of the reason the movie did so commercially well, especially in America, um, is that it's a pro-capitalist movie and a pro-capitalist system. I absolutely agree that Batman being somebody who has come into his wealth uh, and is going to use it to change the world to make it a better place through money is a, a notion that's being supported here, whether Nolan entirely endorses it or not. 100%. And you even see this kind of, I, I, I want to say enlightened despotism in the way that kind of the authority is placed in Batman's hand. You see it in The Dark Knight with him kind of engaging in this mass surveillance that he felt that he alone could do because he needed to solve this crime. But it's a massive violation of privacy of everyone in the town. But he feels that, well, I need to catch this criminal, so it's completely fine for me to do this. And there's kind of a amelioration of that with him allowing Lucius to destroy that afterwards. But that still is kind of that violation of privacy. And then in The Dark Knight Rises, you have him kind of step in and be like, this technology, this fusion reactor, it could potentially be weaponized. So I'm going to shut it down entirely, even though that technology could help so many people. It could be a tremendous source of power. It could, I mean, basing it off of current days with climate change, right? That would completely change the game and all of that. 
But because of his personal fears of what could happen, he just shuts it down. And that's kind of vindicated because the entire plot with Bane and everything is kind of centered on that. And I feel that like that that, that just further pushes that kind of pro-capitalist, pro-billionaire savior uh, message kind of in a way. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, Bane is the kind of leader of the revolution of the people, um, at least at first in Dark Knight Rises, it very much feels like it's of the people for the people, right? Um and, you know, the taking over of Wall Street, it seems, right, it seems like the 99, you know, he's representative of a kind of 99% pushing back to take over and change the system. But, of course, like both of you said, in the end, um, well, Bain himself becomes monstrous, like absolutely monstrous, right? Um, the The face of if we want to call it the kind of revolution here becomes monstrous, but also the kangaroo court, right? Um, And what does that tell us? What is that? Like you were saying, it's a pro capitalist movie. You know, what is it telling the audience goers about real revolution? Well, you have like the real life Occupy Wall Street movement, I think going around at around the same time as this movie was being made. And I feel like this guy's kind of sends all the wrong messages where it's kind of like, well, you see all these protesters, they want to they want to do all this. And it kind of, I think, wraps it all up in like the same box where it's saying that this kind of like class struggle in general is eventually going to devolve into this kind of thing where this pushback against billionaires is kind of unfounded because billionaires are the only ones who have the knowledge or the resources to actually save us. And when you give the power to the people like this, it kind of feels like the movie is saying that this is what it's going to devolve into, these kind of injustices. Batman as an intensely moral character who lives by a certain code, no killing, no guns, we see this over and over again, has a really interesting flexibility of morals where he gets to decide when something is right or wrong. The phone example is exactly perfect for this, where surveillance, uh, obviously evil, we hate it when the NSA taps our phones, but this billionaire can do it because he is the enlightened one, the white savior who knows what's best for us. And even going further than that, you even see it in terms of how he deals with his no-kill code, right? In the comics, or in like a lot of Batman versions, he won't kill by omission either. Like, he would view refusing to save someone the same as killing them. But here, it's kind of like, well, I don't have to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And he just kind of, he, he has this kind of multiple times, where in, the, in, in Batman Begins, he obviously does that. Uh, in The Dark Knight, he can't do that, because that's Joker's entire thing he's trying to make Batman break. So he refused to do that. And then in The Dark Knight Rises, he has that again where he's telling Bane, you tell me how to do this and then you have my permission to die. It's just kind of like he feels it feels kind of like there's a certain line where once you cross that, he won't really care about his moral code. It'll just be like, I'll toss it out. I can I can write the rules how I want them to be. I can jump out with these technicalities and it's just kind of up to me to decide. It's not really anything I'm too invested in beyond when I'm beating up thugs on the street. It makes uh, Heath Ledger's Joker bit about the two of them not being so dissimilar really stand out to me and ring kind of true. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about um, jo- the jo- well Joker. Um, I know some of us have seen the you know Todd Phillips version, and of course we have Heath Ledger's Joker in Dark Knight. And uh, what I wanted to t- kind of touch on here is maybe Nolan does turn a good sort of direction with 
Heath Ledger's Joker. And, um, you know, here, uh, especially thinking about, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's kind of, you know, idea and embodiment of Joker as someone who suffers from mental illness um, as a kind of contrast. Now, we don't have to talk about Joaquin Phoenix, but I would like to talk about Heath Ledger. What do, what's on your mind with Heath Ledger? Uh, to segue uh, a bit, I think that the the depiction of the general populace of Gotham between the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises was a really strangely different where the the sort of climax of the dark knight i would argue is a scene where both boats of people choose spoiler alert folks both both people choose not to blow each other up where humanity comes together uh opposed to what the joker says that oh it's we're all out here to eat each other and then we go into the dark knight rises and bane steps in and says no we really are here to eat each other and fills the city with criminals i agree with that wholeheartedly like it feels like they're both approaching the the like the theme of this kind of what is the soul of the common man in two radically different ways. Where like the Dark Knight is about showing that kind of people are inherently good and that they don't inherently want to just murder each other and kind of disprove the Joker's thesis that deep down everyone's as crazy as no, – not crazy. Deep down everyone is kind of like as depraved and as prone to violence as he is. And uh, the Dark Knight Rises is kind of the opposite of that where it kind of just – shows how when pushed in this struggle, people would resort to that kind of violence, that kind of chaos. Yeah, that's really interesting because on the surface, Dark Knight Rises would seem to be, as we've just talked about, um, a Bane who is representative of the people and the will of the people and the motivation of a people or the people. And... Um, and yet, in the end, in that moment, you know, between Batman, uh, before he gets stabbed by Talia, um, we realize that it's actually all self-interest. That, in fact, everything that he's been doing has nothing to do with the people. And I mention this because it seems to be a sharp contrast from Heath Ledger, who, on the surface, would seem to be all about the self and the self-interest, but in fact... Everything he does is to bring out what he thinks is finally the will or the the kind of the deep inner essence of the people. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with this that as well. Like, what I found to be really disappointing about Bane in The Dark Knight Rises is how, despite all of this buildup, this probably over two hours of building him up to be this big foe that is this mastermind, this intelligent villain, um, issues of his changing race from the comics aside he is portrayed to be this formidable threat and he's generally a well-written villain but at the end it kind of just all comes crumbling down he just becomes this kind of love-struck puppy for Talia al Ghul who comes out of nowhere and compare that to the Joker who is like he says he's a dog but like he's not he knows what he's doing and he's planning this all out and he is the one in control of that entire movie from beginning to end and it really is only by sacrificing himself at the end that Batman is able to derail that train. And I think it just shows a complete contrast in terms of how you portray this kind of villain, this ideal. Because at the end, Bane's ideal is kind of like fake. It's kind of all hollow. His 99% revolution is just 
a ruse. It's just a guise to destroy the city. And you can say what that you will about uh, you, you can say what you will about how that is reflected back on the Occupy Wall Street movement and the actual kind of class struggle that's going on today. But the Joker doesn't fall into that trap because he's kind of running the show and he knows what he is. He's not going to be usur- usurped by something at the end. His motivations are his motivations, and he knows that from beginning to end. I think there are some really striking visual elements, especially in The Dark Knight Rises, that sort of put the lie to a lot of the support of this sort of like, you know, eat the rich mindset uh, that we we might be supporting more in The Dark Knight. Um, And I'm thinking especially of the portrayal of the two sides in that sort of final climactic scene. It's happening mostly in the background for Batman and Bane, but we have, um, you know, a lot of people with assault weapons firing them into the air, riding around on trucks, very reminiscent of, like, a, a radical terrorist organization. And on the other side, a literal army of police officers marching down the street, uh, all in uniform, spick and spam, despite having been in the sewers for three months. And then compare that to the Joker, who has... You know, his gang of thugs, but he, like the opening of the movie, is willing to gun them down because, like you said, he is there in the self interest and he is there in support of sort of the each person following their own will. Yeah, pretty extraordinary, right? Because, yeah, at least on the surface, each one is actually telling the opposite story, right? I mean, in the sense that Bane is supposed to be 99%, um, but he's not. Right. When you pull it all back and Joker is supposed to be I mean, a lot of people read Joker and Dark Knight um, as um, anarchic without any plan, without any system, without using reason. But my God, right. Like it's the opposite to that. Um, And in many ways, he's gotten as far as he has because, well, he does. There is a certain element of truth in the Hobbes is, you know, saying homo omni lupus, right? Man is wolf to man. Um, you know, there is a certain, you know, element of, you know, society where we see that. Now, I'm more on the virtue ethics kind of Batman side of things. I'm optimistic. I think that, you know, we can create a, a healthy social tissue and people, you know, in their nature will help one another. But... Um, let me so while we're on this sort of you know all these amazing things that we've been talking about, um, there have been some you know people have raised issues about Selena Kyle as you know Catwoman in Dark Knight Rises and her being like too sexualized or too this or that, and I'm not sure um, I'm on that same kind of you know, the table or sitting with these same folks on the same side of the table. But I wanted to get your guys's sort of sense of, you know, sexuality and gender, um, whether it's in Dark Knight Rises or in any of the trilogy films. I haven't gone through minute by minute and checked. I'm pretty sure all three of them fail the Bechdel test just as a starting point. Um, and and I what's think, the Bechdel test? Uh, yeah, so uh, I believe it's Alice Bechdel um, back in the, I want to say the 80s, proposed a test where um, in a movie there has to be at least one scene where two female characters um, discuss something that isn't a lead male character. 
And there are a lot of variations on this. You can require them to be named characters. You can say that the conversation about a male character is okay as long as they're not fawning over him. Um, but it's kind of alarming how many movies fail this. How, how many just don't have enough scenes of female characters speaking to each other, either because the casting is so overwhelmingly male, or because even when the female characters are there, they revolve around the male characters. And in that, while we could use more strong female leads, I have to give Catwoman credit for not being obsessed with Batman. That's definitely kind of a through line through Catwoman's entire portrayals, both in comics and in films and all, all, all sorts of media. Where she's kind of this more chaotic, neutral figure, where she's kind of on her own. She's all about what she can get out of a situation. She's in it for her own personal gain. And obviously this varies. There's some inter- interpretations that have her as a lover for Batman, others that don't. Um, but definitely I think that this, this, this uh, Dark Knight Rises kind of had it both ways, where for, for most of the movie, there was no real romantic interest between the two of them. But at the end, you kind of still have that happen just out of nowhere. Yeah, so we've got that, you know, Chris Nolan gave us the little, you know, the the straight kind of, you know, um, wrap up there with the bow tie and the wrapping paper while they're sitting there in Venice, right, mm-hmm. on the piazza. Um, yeah, um, Maggie Hall, right? Um, and then, of course, um, you know, in the first Batman Begins, um, we also have you know, um, maybe, I don't know, would you guys argue perhaps um, a, maybe a less um, intellectually present, um, you know, female uh, figure, um, love interest? What would you, how would you guys read gender in Batman Begins? Just generally, there isn't much real diversity in that in, in general. It really is only Rachel in the first film, I think. I, I, I struggle to think of any other named female characters in that movie other than her. Yeah, and, and her screen time is pretty minimal, right? It is, right. And it, it definitely is a movie that's more Batman-focused and kind of Batman, Gordon, Rachel Ghoul, and um, Scarecrow. And they're kind of the, they, kind of sw- they kind of suck up all the oxygen in the film. That leaves very little time for her. And she's kind of relegated to just kind of love interest for Batman, which is mixed, obviously. And she definitely does have agency of her own, but it kind of she's kind of thrown in situations where she needs to be saved by Batman because she's kind of biting off more than she can chew. I think that's how it presented, at least. I think it, my initial response to uh, Batman you know, eating up a lot of screen time is that, well, it is a Batman movie. Fair but point. <laughs> you bring up a very important point about supporting characters, where throughout the trilogy, we have you know Commissioner Gordon, we have Harvey Dent, we have uh, the, the mayor in uh, Dark Knight Rises who meets an unfortunate end there. But so many of these characters are male characters. And we don't get a chance, even if we have the female characters like Rachel or or Catwoman or Talia al Ghul, they don't get the chance to interact with anybody but these male characters who are Batman-centric. And their actions tend to be centered around Batman. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I was just watching the CW Batwoman series that just, you know, we've got a couple of episodes of. And, um, of course, you know, in the space of the CW, we have, you know, Batwoman, um, who's, you know, out lesbian and 
we've never seen that certainly in a kind of feature length film at least up to this point am i right guys um my my gut would say yes nothing on the level of budget of like the marvel or dc films yeah and um yeah so george I know you've had a t- had a look at the CW and have some ideas about that space in terms of gender and sexuality um, within the DC kind of bat universe. I I have two major first reactions to having seen, admittedly, just the pilot with three episodes out as of the time of recording. The first one is that this is more evidence than maybe anything we've seen uh, or maybe it's just another piece of evidence for anybody who needs another wake-up call that there are very talented actors out there looking for this kind of work who are willing to play these characters whether they are themselves you know a marginalized group like people of color lgbt um, or whether they are simply willing to help give those people a voice and a story on screen in these really big budget productions My second response to it is that the fact that these narratives can work with these elements in them opens up a lot of new, very interesting possibilities where we no longer just have to, you know, pick from the female characters for the love interest for the protagonist. If we exist in a space where we have, uh, you know, an LGBT accessible audience and cast, we now have more options for the narrative. We have more ways the story can go. We have more stories that have not been given the screen time they deserve and honestly haven't been given the screen time they could use for making money for these studios if they really wanted to jump on this. Um, Mental health issues in the CW in this space maybe taking a little couple steps back. And this is where... A lot of the reviews I've seen talk about how it's a shame that we've lost so much from Batman because we can't use the name characters. There is no Joker. There is no Commissioner Gordon. The thing I was maybe most excited for in this new Batwoman show was that we could have some villains who are not plagued by mental illness as something that incites violence. Keeping in mind that in real life, mental illness makes you much more likely to become a victim of violence than a perpetrator of it. But the CW has sort of taken a back to the old beating the dead horse route and giving us a character who is just an embodiment of madness, who's going for an Alice in Wonderland motif of all things. Yeah, the the space of the CW, so much possibility, and we're seeing that, but also so much kind of retrograde kind of um, conservatism when it comes to thinking, you know, new storylines, new kinds of characters. Um, So back to Nolan's trilogy as a kind of wrap up. Um, We all agree. Extraordinary. I mean, you know, I honestly, you know, that the the use of IMAX, right? Filming, what was it? 70 plus minutes in Dark Knight Rises, something insane, right? With that big, you know, that horizontally sort of fixed camera that they have to use to do that filming. Um, the opening of it, extraordinary, right? Where Bane is introduced to us and the plane is sort of blown, you know, at uh, backside and it's, you know, f- falls tip, tip up. Um, wow, I mean... And, of course, Hans Zimmer, Newton's score, right, guys? I mean, amazing. But, you know, when it comes to content, story, gosh, don't, you know, yeah, there's some extraordinary moments and some extraordinary storytelling. Um, 
there's this anchoring in the real grit of every day. But I don't know. Um, are we thumbs up with, you know, how the intelligence and imagination and innovation of a Nolan could go? It seems like maybe sort of selling himself short here. I definitely would give him a thumbs up for Begins and for The Dark Knight. I think both those movies really, really are exceptional in terms of how they approach it, in terms of their theming, in terms of everything. I think they really hit the nail on the head. I do personally kind of give a thumbs down for Dark Knight Rises because even with all that visual spectacle, I think that it kind of is backwards a bit in terms of how it should be approaching things thematically. And just personally, I think I feel, I feel a few of those kind of rub me the wrong way, especially in how in terms of like kind of how billionaires are portrayed in terms of how um, kind of how Bane is handled in terms of these various things. I think that it kind of gets kind of eaten up by the size of the undertaking. Absolutely. And I'll just throw in, I mean, someone who's interested in, you know, Latinx representation, we have the two orphan boys who are, and then that's it. And yeah. one of them dies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, George, what, how about you? Where are you on this? Yeah, I, while I'm absolutely inclined to agree that formally it's just a gorgeously built movie, I think every part of that came together really well. The representation, the messaging they choose to put forward could definitely use some work. And something that has struck me over and over again in studying films like this in in the CW's Batman, in Dark Knight, in all of these, is that every time we decide to push the boundaries of storytelling a little more, we find out just how many more stories there are. Um, When we bring in these uh, LGBT and characters and these characters of color, we find out that they have their own narratives to tell that just by their mere presence on the screen get added to our story world that we wouldn't otherwise have. That, that there is this uh, sort of inherent value in bringing the largest diversity of ideas to the screen as possible. I agree wholeheartedly. There's a whole untapped reservoir, really, of uh different perspectives that can be brought in and not even necessarily new perspectives, but just things that have already been written in comics. There are all sorts of different villains, different heroes altogether that kind of are being ignored or kind of jumped over to kind of go with the easiest path or the most straightforward path or maybe the most popular path. And I think that that's kind of a missed opportunity because there's a lot of really, really interesting things out there. And I think the appeal to popularity that kind of is in the forefront of a lot of the minds of these creators kind of leads, as you said, to that lack. And it really kind of shrinks our worldview and limits us. Yeah, and I'm not too optimistic about Matt Reeves' Batman that's going to be right around the corner of 2021. We'll see what happens there, guys. Anyway, thanks so much for joining me for the session of Professor Latinx and all things Chris Nolan. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us.